Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of M's Drive-In. I'm your host, Emily, bringing you into the exciting worlds of cinema with some behind-the-scenes facts and everything you need to know about some of the best artists in the business. Today's episode is all about the unique world of Tim Burton. I hope you all enjoy, and let's get right to it. First up, we have Tim Burton's directing style. According to the article, What is Burton-esque? A Complete Tim Burton Style Analysis, written by Chris Heckman for StudioBinder.com, the article states, Perhaps no filmmaker knows how important mise-en-scene is more than Tim Burton. Mise-en-scene plays a huge role in creating mood, the feel of a story, and tone, the attitude of the artist. We can see the effects of expressive mise-en-scene everywhere in Burton's best movies, and it's largely responsible for how we feel about his film worlds. What makes a Tim Burton film so amazing is his production design. And there are two different sides to the way that he designs his films. There is the naturalistic side, which mimics his exaggerated view of quote-unquote American suburbia and is very defined by bright and bold colors. And there's the more theatrical side, which is defined by a more gothic tone and very mechanical machinery that is very much inspired by German Expressionism. And German Expressionism was such a huge artistic style of filmmaking that highlighted society's anxieties through very gothic and nightmarish types of imagery. Burton's lighting style also mirrors very active settings, and he's really good at being able to create a dreamlike feel in many of his films. There's a very distinct imaginative atmosphere where a lot of the characters have room to play, and his characters are very defined by these exaggerated features, such as long frizzled hair, baggy eyes, gangly limbs, oftentimes feels very out of this world and very unconventional. And his characters, in that sense, do coexist incredibly well with their costume design, too, because a lot of the costumes are very vibrant and vivid and feature a lot of vivid colors and styles that add on to the very distinct and different features of each character. The first movie we are going to talk about today is Edward Scissorhands. This movie was written by Tim Burton and Caroline Thompson and was directed by Tim Burton. This film is about an artificial man named Edward who is played by Johnny Depp, who was incompletely constructed and has scissors for hands and leads a solitary life. When loving suburban saleswoman Peg, played by Diane Weist, discovers Edward and takes him home, he falls for Peg's teen daughter Kim, played by Winona Ryder. Despite his kindness and artistic talent, Edward's hands make him an outcast. The themes of this movie are isolation, conformity, innocence, and self-discovery. According to the article, Gentle Disruptions, Edward Scissorhands, and the Discourse of Normalcy, written by Eric Drown for Medium.com, the article states, If the suburb represents timeless, unrestrained sameness, the gothic castle showing all the conventional markers of the horror film is clearly the domain of difference. As in Frankenstein, the overgrown forest leading up the hill, the dark and diplobated mansion, the adventure's mixture of man and machine in his work suggests that this is a place where the human quest for knowledge challenges the domain of God, bringing doom to all. This quote leads us into our first theme of isolation. Isolation is represented through a nuclear family. And when we think of nuclear family, we think of a group of people who are united by ties of partnership and parenthood and this consisting of a pair of adults and their socially recognized children. 
Peg, Kim, Bill, and Kevin mirror the nuclear family structure by abiding by what is acceptable in their society, while Edward mirrors this isolated figure that wants to integrate himself into that type of family structure. And in that regard, this film is very similar to how Frankenstein wants to integrate himself into a society with fixed expectations and rules. There's a lot of symbolism related to this theme. By Edward having scissors for hands, the literal scissors is what causes much of his isolated status, and that is seen as the reason why he doesn't fit into the status quo of suburbia. And it's a really interesting representation of how differences are shunned or not accepted in a society that follows specific conventions. The article continues to state, If Edward recognizes his difference, the residents of suburbia work hard to deny it, developing mechanicisms that allow them not to see its physical signs. In order to manage their discomfort at his difference, the neighborhood tries to reinterpret Edward in their own frames of reference. This quote leads us into the theme of conformity. The community is really able to rally around to make Edward assimilate into their ideals of what their suburbia is like. For example, of neighbors saying that they know a doctor friend who will quote-unquote help him. You can get an idea very, very quickly that all of the neighbors are subtly finding ways to try to fix his differences. And they're doing so in ways that are polite because that is what their suburbia represents. It's this clean, polite, normal way of living. And considering that Edward doesn't fit that archetype, they have to try and find a way to make sure that he can fit into what they believe is to be normal within their own little society. On the other hand, Edward is really able to subvert and create a contrast against this type of conformity. He's able to reinterpret their environment to his liking, and he does this by being creative. He makes hedges into sculptures and gives haircuts to animals, which often mirrors their owner's individuality, and he creates this overall avant-garde response to the portrait of what the neighborhood paints. When we think about avant-garde, we think of this new and unusual experimental idea that is often expressed in the arts. And it goes back to this whole entire Frankensteinian vibe that Burton has created within this world. The inventor creates Edward as a representation of a father-son dynamic, and he uses that artistic vision to create a humanistic image that doesn't fit social norms, which is why Edward himself is seen as a quote-unquote experiment. The article continues to state, From Bill's point of view as the figure of authority, Edward's preference for his own ethical code represents a threat to a law theoretically based on the consent of the governed, and he so tries to get Edward to internalize the law that quote-unquote everybody knows. But since Edward is clearly the moral center of the film, he is the character least changed by his move in and out of suburbia. Here the film dramatizes the failure of the either-or logic of quote-unquote right and wrong. This quote leads us into the theme of innocence and self-discovery. Edward does conform in the context of his pure love for Kim, and this purity is what leads his compass of morality. 
An example of this is when Kim's boyfriend Jim tricks Edward into robbing his dad's house. Edward knew it was his dad's house all along, and when Kim asks him why did he do it, Edward replies, because you wanted me to. And he does this simply because he wants Kim's acceptance. He loves and cares for her and just wants her to feel the same way back. And it's this innocence that he has that stops him from following his moral compass because there is a part of him that wants to please his quote-unquote nuclear family, much like an orphan child would. And an orphan child is exactly what Edward is. He was abandoned by the inventor because the inventor died. And the inventor was supposed to be this father-like figure for him. And now that he doesn't have a father-like figure, he has to be taken in by somebody else. But these people that he has been taken in by are assimilated into this world of complete cleanness and politeness and... Things are very same in this world of suburbia that he is now in. With that being said, Edward does discover that his place is meant to be estranged from that society. He doesn't want to associate with the suburban mentality, which doesn't acknowledge his existence without his ability to conform. In other words, he'll only find some support in the world if he was quote-unquote normal. And that is a huge part of what the ending of this film represents. Edward goes home to his gothic castle of isolation because that is where he thrives the most and that is where he really isn't defined by social conventions that don't support him as an individual. But at the same time, he always makes it known that he is thinking of Kim. And there's this great symbolism of snow in the film. And snow does represent the softness and love that he desperately yearned for from the rest of society. And in a lot of ways, Kim was the only person that really saw him for who he truly was and eventually learned to accept him on her own turf and in her own moral way. And that is why the two of them thrive together in this movie. It is really them against the rest of a society that doesn't want to accept any kind of difference or any kind of image that isn't exactly what they want to interpret. Next up, we have Big Eyes. This movie was written by Scott Alexander and Larry Karzinski and was directed by Tim Burton. This film is about the awakening of painter Margaret Keane, played by Amy Adams, her phenomenal success in the 1950s, and the subsequent legal difficulties she had with her husband Walter, played by Christoph Waltz, who claimed credit for her works in the 1960s. The themes of this movie are art, commerce, dishonesty, and creation. According to the article Big Eyes, written by James Berdellini for RealViews.com, the article states, Plagiarism, is it said, is the greatest sin that can be committed against an artist. Big Eyes illustrates that it's no less traumatic when the artist is complicit in the act. From the moment when Walter claims Margaret's art as his own, she feels as if she has lost her identity. She becomes morose and withdrawn. It's not that she desires wealth, which she has, or fame, which has been ceded to her husband, but she wants recognition for her creations. They are her babies. Worse to keep the gravy train rolling, Walter forces her to labor day and night churning out Big Eyes paintings. The soul goes out of her work. This quote leads us into the theme of art and commerce. When we think about commerce, we think of the activity of buying and selling, particularly on a large scale. Margaret's art is very much tied to her identity. 
She can't really imagine her life without self-expression. And these paintings that she makes are so much more than just something quote-unquote pretty for society to consume. They reveal a lot of attitudes and social behaviors that Margaret has kept hidden. And it goes back to this whole entire idea of how art reflects what we can't express in real life. And it creates a great tug-of-war kind of mentality. Because making art strictly for selling makes the artists lose their creative desires. And Margaret has given up full control over her work to please not only her husband, but an entire demographic that relies on pretty and nice materials. And it's a great contrast to what popular media looks for. Not everyone will understand or appreciate art that is unconventional or out of the norm. And it's this difference between creating to please a popular culture versus creating for your own fulfillment. And Margaret wants to create to feel fulfilled. And Walter uses a lot of that motive to make money. And he's profiting off of work that he claims to be his. And that false ownership that Walter obtains takes away the whole entire message of the pieces of art that Margaret has created. According to the article, Tim Burton's Big Eyes and the Torture of Dishonesty, written by Derek Jacobs for PlotAndTheme.com, the article states, And though conflict grows between him and Margaret, the two share similar story arcs. Just like his wife, Walter's dishonesty undermines his emotional equilibrium. One need only consider how he responds to poor reviews from art critics or perceived slights against his talent to recognize that his mind is a fragile thing. Thus, when Margaret stands up to him, as only she can, his response is to browbeat and intimidate her into compliance, sometimes through physical force. Waltz walks this knife's edge perfectly, flush with charisma at one moment and exploding in rage the next. This quote leads us into the theme of dishonesty. Margaret has to constantly put on this fake persona when she's around Walter. And she does this in order to give off the impression that he is the true quote-unquote artist of her work. And it's all about maintaining this image to keep this lie that they have both created alive and well in order for her paintings to make money. And this ideology creates a great mirroring effect in the film. Margaret puts on this portrait to support her actual portraits and it's this idea of this image of fakeness versus the image of real art and what she has to be able to sacrifice in order to have her art be seen and a huge part of that is that she has to give up some humility in order for Walter to use a lot of his narcissism in order to sell her work. An example of this is when Margaret begins to imagine everyone she comes in contact with that has actual big eyes. And it's this metaphor for how she feels as if society is catching her in on the lie. And it creates this great open-ended question of, will she be exposed? Will Walter be exposed? What will happen when this lie comes into the open and is out in the public forum? And also, what will be this outcome of Margaret telling the truth? Again, we are looking at a time period during the 50s and the 60s when women were expected to be a supporting character. They were expected to be supporting their husbands who were having this fruitful career. But in this film, the gender roles are reversed. Margaret is technically the one that is supposed to have the fruitful career, and Walter is the one that hasn't really achieved much, and that is why he takes on Margaret's art as his own. But they are evidently following that archetype of 
what it means for women and men to exist in the 50s and transitioning into the 60s. The article continues to state, The strongest character moments reveal the damage of the lie. The best performance scenes portray the descent into misery and that accompanies such a fiction. And the strength of the plot derives mostly from Margaret's internal conflict and the catharsis of lifting this unfathomable weight from her soul. This quote leads us into the theme of creation. This theme symbolizes who has the authority to create based on social expectations and conventions. An example of this in the film is when Walter convinces Margaret that no one would buy her work if they knew the paintings were created by a woman. And Margaret ends up submitting to this belief and believing everything that Walter puts in front of her. And it's again giving into this ideology that everything that society believes is the truth. And because of this, Margaret does submit herself to Walter's ego and charm to a certain degree. By creating for someone else, her paintings begin to lose their original meaning and take on a whole new authority that is rooted in dishonesty and it's clearly rooted in this dictatorship that Walter has formed because he sets the tone for how her paintings will be received. And that is a huge part of what the ending of the film represents. Margaret has a chance to take Walter to court and sue him for his actions. And the judge ends up giving them both an hour to paint as a way to prove who is the true artist. And Walter ends up coming up with every excuse in the book not to paint. And Margaret knows that in this moment she officially has him wrapped around her finger and is finally able to prove that she is the sole creator and that her paintings do come from a soulful perspective. And they come from a place of creating to express some kind of deeper meaning that we can't express in real life rather than just creating for the sake of consumerism and for the sake of a product that needs to be sold. Now moving on to some fun facts. For Edward Scissorhands, Tim Burton hired Caroline Thompson, then a young novelist, to write the Edward Scissorhands screenplay as a spec script. Burton was impressed with their short novel, Firstborn, which was about an abortion that came back to life. Burton felt Firstborn had the same psychological elements he wanted to showcase in Edward Scissorhands. Every detail was so important to Tim because it was so personal, Thompson remarked. She wrote Scissorhands as a love poem to Burton, calling him the most articulate person I know, but couldn't put a single sentence together. Tim Burton and Caroline Thompson cite monster stories, specifically The Hunchback of Notre Dame, The Phantom of the Opera, Frankenstein, King Kong, and Creature from the Black Lagoon, and fairy tales as an influence on this film. Although Tim Burton said this isn't his greatest film, he said it is his favorite of all of his films, and the score is Danny Elfman's favorite of all of his soundtrack compositions. The first draft of the film was written as a musical, a concept Tim Burton would revisit for The Nightmare Before Christmas and Corpse Bride. Four Big Eyes For research, Amy Adams consulted with the real-life Margaret Keene, who was in her late 80s. According to Adams, Keene was overwhelmed by the notion that anybody would want to make a film about her life. Amy Adams liked the script when it was offered to her, but she originally turned down the role of Margaret because the character lacked a strong sense of self. Working on American Hustle gave Adams a new perspective of the character, and the character's quiet dignity won her over. The relationship between the mother and the daughter spoke to her as well. This is Tim Burton's first live-action film not to feature Helena Bonham Carter since they met on the set of Planet of the Apes.
After Tim Burton joined Disney in 1979, he worked as an animator on The Fox and the Hound, under the supervision of Glenn Keane, an artist who happens to have the same surname as the main characters in Big Eyes. Now moving on to some movie recommendations. First up, we have the film Love and Tulsa. This was a documentary about Anton Yelchin, and it was absolutely incredible. He was definitely somebody that could have ended up with such an amazing career. This was somebody that was so interested in every single aspect of what it meant to be an artist, whether it be in music, whether it be in film, whether it be in any kind of creative space. He wanted to learn as much as he could and was so eager to be a part of the process and his love for his family and his love and appreciation for the people that he worked with was so evident in this documentary and he was just such an amazing actor and definitely somebody that I really wish could have stuck around and would be able to make so many more incredible films. Next up, we have the independent film Kiss of the Damned. This was a movie that John Cassavetti's daughter, Zan Cassavetti's, wrote and directed, and it's a really great independent underground vampire film. There was a great 70s vibe to it, and the costumes were very hip and very much in the 70s atmosphere. And it was just a really, really cool movie to be able to see because... I read that Zan Cassavetes was very influenced by 70s horror films, specifically 70s horror films that revolved around vampires. And I really got that influence in the film. That influence did come through in a really captivating way. And even though this film is a bit underground and independent, and not a lot of people have probably heard of it or would be able to go see it, I'm still very appreciative of this movie because it's a really great example of how you don't have to be in the center of Hollywood to make a good film and to make a film that's worth seeing. As our time together comes to an end, I just want to thank everyone for tuning in to M's Drive-In. I'm your host Emily bringing you into the exciting world of cinema with some behind the scenes facts and everything you need to know about some of the best artists in the business. Keep an eye out for our next episode on Disney and live action.